Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome. Thank you very much for being here and for kicking off this uh, two-day discussion of Brexit and the future of British-Irish uh, relations. Uh, this is very much a collaborative event. I'm Daniel Carey, director of the Moore Institute. So this was kind of instigated, if you like, between myself and Patrick Griffin, and then who is <clears throat> director of the Keogh Naughton Institute for Irish Studies in Notre Dame. Uh, Patrick contrived somehow to miss his flight. He would otherwise be here. So he's for us, he's very much an absent presence and was crucial in the design and thinking through of this process. And then we were joined by colleagues at the George Mitchell Institute at Queen's. So a nice trio coming together to discuss this issue of the utmost moment, put it that way. Now, when Patrick and I first met, this is back in August when I was there for a couple of weeks uh, visit as his guest. We thought about things that we could collaborate on this year. And I said, well, the obvious thing uh, is to talk about Brexit this year. At that time, I never imagined that early, uh, late February, early March, we would still be, still be discussing the actual major issues, technicalities of how this process is meant to run. My suggestion was we talk about the future relationship, because that still won't be resolved. So we are, we are where we are. Um, I want to say a little bit about the set design here, just as a curiosity. Uh, there's a production of Accidental Death of an Anarchist coming up uh, shortly. <laughs> um, we felt the, the symbols were somehow useful to us, that this is either a window onto a bright future or a crashing out scenario. So we can sort of, depending upon the mood of the speaker of the room and so forth, we will allegorize uh, accordingly. Um, the Moore Institute, just to say a few quick words about it, is our, our de we're dedicated to humanities and social studies, so we have an interest in bringing politics, sociology, humanities together in a kind of open discussion, and this is a, a perfect opportunity to take advantage of that. I do want to make some uh, preliminary thanks. We'll have opportunities throughout to, to, to mention this. Uh, I've worked very closely with Catherine Wilsden, who's been in touch with lots of people it's been a fantastic partnership and collaboration. I, I, I really thank you for that uh, experience and opportunity and uh, very much looking forward to the next two days as the, as the realization of all of those, those efforts and collaborations. Uh, Neil Lodocherty has been, uh, my colleague in politics here, has been absolutely crucial in making introductions, invitations, um, giving advice. Thank you, Neil, very much. You'll be chairing the second session, so you'll have a chance to hear in that context. And also to thank colleagues in the, in the Moore Institute, Leanne Cox has been very helpful, and, and Martha Shocknessy, who are, who are here. Well, without further ado, I want to uh, hand over now to Kevin Whelan, as Kevin is, he's right before me. So Kevin is director of the Notre Dame uh, Dublin Global um, Gateway, and he's going to speak on behalf of the Notre Dame side of this partnership. So, Kevin. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Dan. It's Balam Gajova, and sure, the um, Patrick uh, Griffin, who is the director of the Keonokton Institute of Irish Studies, was unfortunately derailed or deplaned on his uh, on his way over he here. Um, but Patrick wanted me to say, first of all, that it is a tremendous pleasure for us in the University of Notre Dame uh, Irish Studies uh, community to be partnered with both the Moore Institute here at NUIG and indeed with Queen's University Belfast as well. Um, sometimes when you talk about Brexit, it's kind of like as if it's just an Irish or British or an EU thing. But obviously uh, another leg to that stool is the whole relationship with uh, the United States of America. And that's a, of major moment now for the EU because you can see there's a widening gap between Europe 
and America as well. So uh, how Brexit plays in terms of the evolution of the relationship between Europe and America, indeed Britain and America, and most crucially for us uh, in Ireland, Ireland and America, is another part of the equation. So it's very appropriate that this is a tripartite um, set of institutions who are running uh, this conference. I also want to say on behalf of Patrick that uh, in Notre Dame, I suppose we've been building for Irish studies since 1993. We have over 30 now professors teaching various aspects of Irish studies and we are now partnered with four Irish universities, uh, UCD, Trinity, uh, DCU and here at NUIG, which we are very excited about. But the other thing is, I suppose, we, we started in the humanities, and that's our kind of core strength, but we now uh, are about to announce a major new initiative started by Patrick Griffin, which is a centre for contemporary Ireland. So we're very keen now to move to look more closely at what's actually happening in the uh, politics, in the economics, in the sociology, and in the understanding of contemporary Ireland, and also occupying that space between Ireland the European Union and America. So uh, Patrick wanted me to uh, say that as well. But it's a great honour and pleasure for us in the Irish Studies community and in the Keonocton Institute of Irish Studies um, in Notre Dame to be partnered with this very fine conference. So enjoy the proceedings, uh, folks. Thank you very much, Kevin. <clears throat> so without further ado, we will embark on our first uh, panel <clears throat> on the European project. And our, our first speaker is Mary Daly, so I'll say a few words of introduction. Uh, in the conference program, you'll see fuller, fuller detail, so I'll be more brief. I did want to draw your attention to uh, a publication of Mary's, uh, which is, is a collaborative venture between the Royal Irish Academy and the British Academy. And I was fortunate to attend a breakfast, uh, breakfast briefing. No, I'm still struggling with it, which was an extremely interesting event held at the British Academy in London and was really an inspiration as we were developing this to try to think of some of the possibilities. So Mary was an obvious person to, to ask and her contribution is this uh, joint publication, Brexit and the Irish Border and the Historical Context. Uh, just a few words about Mary. She's a, a professor of history at University College at Dublin Emerita. Um, she's held many roles. Um, I don't know how you survived them all. Um, one of them was uh, from 2014 to 17 as uh, president of the Royal Irish Academy. And she made history in that context by being the first woman to hold that role um, and has provided enormous leadership in a variety of different historical subjects and as, as a public figure in this, in this space. Just to mention a couple of her recent publications, uh, one on uh, 60s Ireland, Reshaping the Economy, State and Society, 1957 to 73, which came out in 2016 and her co-edited Cambridge History, uh, A Social History of Modern Ireland, with, uh, edited with Eugenio Biagini, which came out uh, in 2017. So, Mary, over to you. Thank you very much, Dan. Conor uh, Gearty describes that as, as the bloody bird version of Brexit and the border, so you have been warned. Um, I've decided to talk to you about sovereignty, because sovereignty... Uh, in, uh, in the Irish context uh, because sovereignty has been such a theme in the Brexit debates in Britain and also taking a historical perspective because it's 100 years roughly since the current shape of the island of Ireland was determined uh, in, in various settlements. Um, and the history, the early decades, in fact probably longer, of 
independent Ireland can be summarised really as a quest for sovereignty, both political and economic sovereignty. Political sovereignty was to a large extent secured by 1938, they got rid of the treaty settlement. Uh, they also promoted Ireland as a separate voice through ILO, Council of Europe, etc. Sorry, League of Nations, I meant, etc. That they weren't just a follower of, of, of the UK. And then you get neutrality and the Republic of Ireland Act. Um, but that's an isolated sovereignty and independence because the country is really cut off from an awful lot of the wider world in the 1950s and a lot of its international dealings are mediated via Britain. There was a bad joke that was used quite a lot in 1950s Ireland that Britain was Ireland's only foreign relation. Um, so from the mid-50s onwards, you have serious efforts to get behind, probably from behind Britain's shadow in political terms at the United Nations, though it's not clear where they're going to stand, and then also increasingly into Western Europe and EEC member states. I'll come back to that in a moment. Economic sovereignty was much trickier than political sovereignty. Uh, you've got the dependency on Britain in so many respects, and Kevin's book will go through it in much more detail than I have time now. But in the 1950s, over 90% of our exports went to the UK, mainly to Britain, not so much to Northern Ireland. Most of our imports came via Britain. Uh, they do diversify, but it's not until the late 1970s that less than half of what Ireland produced went to the market in Britain. So it's a very slow process. And then you take all kinds of other things, currency, banking, financial services. I always felt the supreme irony was that the headquarters of the National Bank of Ireland, which was there as an independent bank until the 1960s, founded by Daniel O'Connell, the headquarters were in London. So I think that kind of sends all kinds of messages in terms of autonomy and sovereignty. So when Europe begins to move towards free trade, a areas are a customs union and Kevin will give you the definitions of the two beautifully in his book um, there is absolute fear in Ireland what are they going to do because if Britain jumps one way they're going to be literally cut off from everything and Ireland's decisions are really determined by what Britain is doing and that really was how Ireland was seen internationally there was a conference in Dublin in 59 the Irish Council of the European Movement had Walter Halstein who was then president of the commission and various other in, in Dublin, and Halstein, reporting on it afterwards, described uh, it just said that Ireland's relationship with Britain was that of the beggar, as Bettler von Großbritannien. And Cahan, who was the head of the OEC at the time, was talking about Ireland in a complacent dependency on Britain. And it's primarily economic, but it's not entirely just economic at the time. Uh, the 1960s shows the real limitations of this asymmetrical dependence on, on Britain. Uh, the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Area Agreement is an attempt to salvage Irish agriculture at the expense of protected industry. But uh, the growth in the 1960s, though it's better than before, was pretty mediocre in European terms. Uh, and the benefits that agriculture secured were limited. The cost of propping up Irish farmers is going up every year in the mid to late 1960s. By 1970, the number one item on the Irish budget every year was subsidies to farmers. So think health spending, failure to keep their budget going up up all the time. That was the that was effectively uh, how health is now. That's where agriculture was in 1970. 
the other dependency is evident is 67, the devaluation of sterling. Britain informs the United States, France, Australia that they're going to devalue. They don't bother telling Ireland because Ireland has no alternative. There isn't even the courtesy of telling them such. When Ken Whitaker in 69 tells Britain the pound is looking wobbly again, that they're going to reduce their holdings of sterling as their foreign reserves. He's told in no uncertain terms that they will retaliate by doing something on agricultural exports, agricultural exports to Britain. So you've got a huge dependency there. And the only way out of that dependency is EEC membership. And there's this paradox about EEC membership for Ireland. If Britain joins, it's fundamental that Ireland joins also. But from the beginning, it was seen a membership of the EC was seen as a way of lessening this dependency on Britain. And as far as the EC members were concerned, it, they saw Ireland as, as a British dependent. And it, a lot of what has to be done is to assert an independent voice to show that they're not just part of that of that that dependency. Sean Lamas's speech when he's presenting membership application says Ireland belongs to Europe by history, tradition and sentiment, no less than by geography, and that has to be spelled out all the way. There's also a and I'll come back to that a little bit later in, the mo- in a moment, a belief that membership would somehow pave the way for some form of united Ireland. That's never clearly articulated, but it's rumbling on. But when Lamas goes to Germany and does a very high-profile radio interview in 61 to push the Irish case, 62, sorry, to push the Irish case, he flags that our number one national goal is reunification. Now, in truth, talking about reunification in Germany is, is probably sensible enough at the time. Uh, EC membership, as we know, does a lot in various ways. Uh, the cap enables a much less painful, a much more managed, more prosperous decline in the dependency on agriculture and the economy. The rural population today is significantly higher than 50 years ago. Uh, so, I mean, I think really the, the cap did help a lot. And the cap was, in a sense, our, N- our NHS, if you think of the Brexit uh, the, the Brexit campaign in Britain, except that we, we did get the dividends from EC membership, uh, that the cap relieved us of all this money that could be spent on other purposes. The savings on farm subsidies went to expand welfare provisions at the time. You get trade diversification, where uh, only... About 13% of our exports now go to Britain. Uh, there's huge benefits for, F, for foreign direct investment uh, selling into the European market. Uh, but that, a lot of those don't really come through until after Maastricht single markets when, when they can really cash in at the time. You've got the currency. I remember about the year 2000 at some conference and some Swedish historians asked me in positive fashion, why were we joining the euro? It, he didn't think it made much sense to be and I said, well, we have to be tied to some currency and haven't been tied historically to sterling. And uh, with the currency fluctuating, interest rates fluctuating by and large in line with sterling, uh, at least uh, as a member of the euro, you have a seat around the table and a voice that can be heard and you're part to the negotiation. So in a sense, the currency disengagement, which is a very long story of green pounds and all the rest of it, also shows an understanding that you can do managed disengagement there. And in foreign policy, uh, I mean, Ireland, the UN did try to be a separate voice and 
tried to persuade other former colonies that Ireland was one of them, and they looked and said, no, you're not, you're European, you're white, you're not. Uh, but EU membership, EC membership did give a space where Ireland as a small country could establish a certain presence, and you see the votes shadowing and so forth, and I mean, our current campaign for membership of the Security Council very dependent on the fact that we are an EU member state. Uh, the Initially in the 1960s, neutrality and defence did look like a very corny issue in terms of uh, other things. But that has been managed in various ways. There are, Ireland has managed to keep its neutrality while also making very careful compromises. So I think the message is that for a small country, uh, its sovereignty is better achieved in a, multi, in a multi, multinational organisation. It does give a space to achieve some strength. It may be different for a larger country at the time. Uh, in terms of relations with Britain, um, the EU membership was critical in all kinds of ways for the political relationship. Up to 1973, meetings between British and Irish ministers were very rare. There were generally crisis meetings. Irish cabinet ministers often went to uh, London and were often fobbed off with the junior minister. Um, and it was very difficult. And there were, as I said, there were generally crisis meetings. British cabinet ministers didn't travel much to Dublin. Ted Heath flew to Baldonnell in 1971, and that was the first British prime minister to actually engage in a formal meeting on Irish soil since independence. Um, they now fly in and out. Theresa May comes for dinner. Um, EEC accession talks brings an awful lot of regular contact between ministers and officials. They share updates on talks. They establish common interests, fisheries being one, one important case in point. Um, and this continues after membership. Both are common law states, both share certain common, common views on a number of issues. And what you get is a normalcy of a relationship emerging between the two countries. Uh, the fact that Ireland's, uh, Ireland, uh, Ireland is there as a small country round the table does create mutual relations, mutual respect. It was a learning experience for both Britain and Ireland. Britain, I think, had to learn to treat Ireland with a degree of, of equivalence, which had not always happened before. They learned to pronounce the word Taoiseach in the BBC without sounding as if they were getting some complicated dental procedure being done at the time. Um, the coincidence of the Northern Ireland crisis and membership is actually quite intriguing, but also quite useful, because an awful lot of low-key but critical talks on Northern Ireland happened on the margins of the accession meetings in the early 1970s. And there was one rather naive civil servant, I think he's Irish, who feared that that channel would be lost when the accession talks ended. They obviously knew nothing about how Brussels worked, that they'd be meeting you know, on such a regular basis. But an awful lot of back channels uh, in Brussels were used to keep negotiations between the two, Britain and Ireland going, particularly at times when relations might have been very bad on security grounds. It did tend to de-dramatise an awful lot of that process. And the close personal relationships should not be underestimated. The classic one is Albert Reynolds and John Major, both finance ministers at EU talks. They became personal friends, common interests, and that the Downing Street Agreement owes an awful lot to that common bond that was established. 
So I think all of that needs to be factored in as a very important a, achievement of self-confidence for an independent Ireland. I think a, a also putting the relationship between Britain and Ireland on, on, a, on a different plane that I think was mutually and is mutually beneficial. Uh, Northern Ireland... Um, I think it's worth looking at the 75 referendum a bit, which was carried 52-48 in Northern Ireland. And there's a very good book by Robert Saunders, Yes to Europe, which actually gives a chapter to Northern Ireland for which he deserves an award. Um, and what you get in that is that sovereignty was a critical issue in that in the discussion about EEC membership in 75. Sinn Féin and the UUP both... Uh, DUP, sorry, both opposed it. Uh, the fears in the DUP were that somehow some was anti-Catholicism, but the other fears are loss of sovereignty, that this would be a curtain for some kind of a united Ireland. Uh, bizarrely, on the other side, Sinn Féin saw Europe as this kind of new colonial power that would entrench partition. And the old argument that was used about NATO, the fact that it would be recognition of the border for, for Britain and Ireland to be in the EEC together. So sovereignty was much more of an argument in the 75 referendum in Northern Ireland than it was in any other part of the, of the UK at the time, where the argument was very much in terms of, of financial settlements. Um, the other argument that was very, very, very much to the fore in the DUP was free, to, free movement of labour, that there'd be mass migration in from the Republic and that this would tip the electoral balance. That had been going on for years. In the first 20 or so years, EEC membership didn't do much to advance cross-border trade or movement of goods. In fact, the complexities of the cap, green pound and all the rest of it created a wonderful new opportunities for smugglers and growing up in County Monaghan I know all about that particular side of things um, it's only post Maastricht with the free movement that that really changes but EU membership was important in more subtle ways John Hume brought Europe into the Northern Ireland strategy from the 1970s and so in a lower key did the Irish government. I, I asked. Uh, I ran a conference in the academy last year when we were, I got senior Irish civil servants to talk about the role in the Northern Ireland peace process, and there was conversation from the floor. And Kevin, your father asked a question, I, and I took the opportunity to ask him about what, if anything, what was the relationship between Europe and the Northern Ireland process. And his answer was to the effect that they were constantly aware in the permanent representation in Brussels that they could be a voice for some Northern Ireland interest that wasn't otherwise supplied and if they could do some useful work for Northern Ireland there they, they did so and certainly on, on many areas uh, notably agriculture in Northern Ireland and Ireland were much more in tune than Britain and Ireland and you find that the Irish commissioners, the Irish mission and to the EU provided a port of call for delegations and an opportunity again for low key engagement on matters of common interest uh, you know anything that, that takes the tension out but there's also the structural funds which I'm sure will be tomorrow and all the other all the other activities. So what we're left with I think is is a complex story. It's not clear but the triangle between Belfast, London and Dublin uh, was impacted in very significant ways by adding Brussels to 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 the to the diagram. It did provide a different space for engagement, a discovery of common interests, creation of mutual respect, and I think by and large for a, an independent Ireland, a, the rule is that the, multilater the multinational 
was in fact a way of enhancing sovereignty and certainly not in any way diminishing it. So I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our second speaker, Professor Kevin O'Rourke, and I, I draw attention to uh, the book that first appeared in French. Yeah. I'm sure there's a story here, which would be interesting in itself to hear, published by Odile Jacob uh, in France, Une brève histoire du Brexit. Nous sommes tous concernés. We are all concerned. So I find that subtitle interesting in itself, which has now appeared uh, just last month. I think that's right in English as a short history of Brexit from Brentree to Brackstop. I guess that doesn't translate well into French. But <laughs> um, these, these two contributions, in effect, are, are, are wonderfully incisive readings of the situation. Um, and have made a huge contribution, I think, will continue to do to people's thinking about these questions. So just a brief introduction to, to Kevin. He's a Ciccioli Professor of Economic History at the University of Oxford. He's a fellow of All Souls. Um, he's also a member of the Royal Irish Academy and a fellow of the British Academy. Um, he, formerly, he taught at a number of institutions. He received his uh, PhD in economics in, in Harvard. He's taught at Columbia, UCD, Harvard, Sciences Po in Paris, and Trinity College uh, before his appointment in Oxford. And he works particularly in the sphere of economic history and international economics. Um, he's published extensively. He's written, for example, on globalization and history, power and plenty, trade war and world economy in the second millennium. Um, I'm very much looking forward to Kevin's remarks. Well, Kevin, thank you. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Um, why the French subtitle, Nous sommes tous concernés, I guess she was hoping that would help her sell some books, you know, <laughs> maybe more in hope than in anticipation, you know, because they're not quite as fascinated by, uh, by Brexit as we are uh, up here. We had also thought as a potential subtitle, Ce n'est pas qu'une question d'argent. It's not just about the money. And actually, I may come back to that, because that is a kind of a theme that runs through a lot of these discussions, you know. Um, so... Uh, I'll take my watch off so I can keep a, an eye on the time. Uh, when you give one of these talks, you need three points. So, so I have three three points to structure things. Um, I'm supposed to be talking not about Brexit per se, but about the future of the European Union. But I've got to suggest that Brexit can, can, can help us think about the future of the European Union. First of all, Brexit, to be positive, reminds us what Europe is all about and what its real accomplishments have been to date. Uh, but secondly, Brexit also reveals to us where Europe has let itself down and where it hasn't lived up to its original promises. And thirdly, I think the process since 2016 really shows us how the European Union has, has changed out of all recognition. It's no longer the European Union, the European communities of the sort of 70s and 80s, and I'll say something about that as well. Um, so first of all, what is Europe all about? Well, it's not just about uh, the money. It, it is about the money. Uh, it is about the single market. Uh, and if the UK leaves the single market, that's going to teach us interesting things about what the single market does for you. It's going to reveal for us uh, in real time what the benefits of the single market are. Um, but when I would talk about my book to the French, I found that the bits of the book that they were all interested in actually were the bits about Ireland, you know. Um, Partly because they like the Irish, you know, and they're very pissed off with our tax policies and so on. But they basically like the Irish, you know, and 
And then they have, I suppose, it's fair to say, uh, 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 as complicated an attitude towards the English as the English have towards them. And that probably feeds into it as well. So, you know, uh, if there's going to be a question of taking sides, you know, instinctively they know what side they're going to be on. But they, you know, I suppose what, what, what we're asking them to do, you know, is to take a hit to their economies. We're asking the French and the rest of the continental Europeans to take a big hit potentially to their economies, which is what's going to happen if there's a no-deal Brexit. It's going to really mess up uh, Calais and other places. It's going to mess up their fishermen and, and so on. And they want to know, well, why is this? And they're open-minded about it. And, well, once you explain to them what it's all about, then they sort of get the point, you know? So, so for them, uh, you know, Europe really isn't about the money. And I, I think that the political support that Ireland has gotten about this border issue really tells us that. And, you know, there is a certain element in London that has always been cynical about the, the claims of Europe, uh, according to which it was, above all, a political project and it was, above all, a peace project. And so there's a slightly mercantile attitude in some bits of Britain. You can't generalise about Britain, as you know, because they're hopelessly divided. So you, you can never generalise about Britain on these things. But, but what it meant was that when they sort of found out across Europe and tried to talk down the Irish government and uh, and so on, they were kind of missing the point. And conversely, the Irish diplomats were pushing on open doors when they said, look, this is about much more than money. This is about peace and security and, and so on. And so there were, a certain mentality in London was, was ill-adapted to that. And I think it's important to remind ourselves of, of, of this right now, that Europe is is really about, about peace. And I hope that the Irish, who, of course, are consumers of the British media, uh, learn the lesson going forward. So that's the positive. So secondly, on the other hand, you know, the worst response possible by Europe in general, or Ireland in particular, to, to Brexit would be to be hubristic in any sort of a way. I mean, Brexit happened in 2016. One of the points I make in the book is that it was a pretty bad year to hold a referendum if you were David Cameron, because Europe was in a right mess in 2015 and 2016. And there's, it's not really all that surprising that somebody might have said, you know what, this is not a club that I particularly want to be uh, a part of. Um, and partly it has to do, I think, with Europe letting itself down when it comes to the original purposes of the, of the thing. So, so those purposes were partly and largely political, but there was also a political purpose in mind. So uh, these are uh, countries that have all lived through not just two world wars, which is where the peace project element come, comes in. They've also lived through the Great Depression, which, of course, helps cause the Second War. Um, and which is a complete e e disaster economically. And there are lessons that are learned. Uh, one lesson is that we can't have protectionism, we can't have the European economy fragmenting, we can't have uh, politics intruding to the extent that it was in trade between our countries. That's, that's dangerous economically. But at the same time, um, you know, these people, now they're all Christian Democrats, nearly all, they're all on the right. But uh, a 1950s Christian Democrat, you know, is pretty left-wing compared to, you know, people today. So, you know, and essentially they've got a social democratic project, which is that we need to uh, make sure that the unemployed, we need to make sure that farmers are going to be voting for democratic <coughs> parties rather than for, for extremist parties. And so we need to provide people with uh, economic security. Uh, we need to, to shore up the political stability of our countries. And to do that, uh, leaving it to the market isn't going to be enough. And so it's not just about creating uh, a common market. It's about uh, 
making sure that economic competition between the member states doesn't lead to a race to the bottom when it comes, for example, to labor standards. So when they negotiate the Treaty of Rome, the French are very worried because the Germans have a 48-hour week and the French already have a 40-hour week. And will this mean that the French uh, car makers will be at an unfair competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis the Germans because they'll be paying more overtime, you know? And so, and so uh, you know, they have a little clause in the treaty according to which, you know, if we don't sort this out a few years after uh, the Treaty of Rome comes into effect, then the French will be allowed to protect their car industry. I made this point in, in, in Belfast at the meeting where, that you were at, and a fellow came up to me after and said, he said, That's a, that was a backstop, wasn't it? And I said, yes, it's a backstop. There was a backstop uh, protection for the French car industry, you know? But they also had things that they were able to agree at the time, for example, equal pay for men and women, so the French didn't want uh, to be undercut by people who were paying their, their, their women less than their men. And this is all theoretical, you understand. Uh, but it was there at the beginning. There was stuff about paid vacations. There was all this kind of stuff actually in the Treaty of Rome. So it's it's supposed to be not just about a common market, but about helping these nascent welfare states that are happening all around Europe at the time to survive uh, and to prosper. And so um, you can ask in the light of Brexit, but also in the light of the Gilets Jaunes, in the light of Salvini, in the light of... Uh, you know, the populists in, 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 in the Netherlands, in the light of actually the very large populist vote we got in Ireland uh, uh, after the crisis. I mean, in the opinion polls, uh, Sinn Féin plus, plus left-wing independence were very, very high in the polls. And so you can ask yourselves, well, actually, has Europe lived up to that original promise of, of combining uh, markets with security for Europeans? And it's not clear that the answer has always been yes to that. I mean, you mentioned my father, who was in Brussels in the 1980s in the Palm Rep. His memory then was that in the early 80s, an inordinate amount of time in Corpor was spent discussing things like regional policy. So if there's some shock to a region, what can we do to help out the region? Well, if you look at the map, the electoral map of Europe now, it's clear that we've got a big regional problem. And it's the same in America, right? The, the Trump phenomenon is largely a regional phenomenon. There are regions that are just suffering from deindustrialization. You know, the Republic of Ireland isn't because we never had the industry, you know, to begin with, you know, so we're lucky that way. You know, we went straight to the, the next phase of growth, but, you know, there are other parts of the island, I suppose, where they do have those problems, you know, and, and how do you cope with that? Uh, it's, it's a complicated question, and it isn't clear that we're doing enough uh, about that. Um, people, now, this is a, a, a blind spot of economists. It, it turns out that people don't just care about how I'm doing. They also care about fairness, you know, um, think about Macron, why is he in such trouble? I mean, it's partly because of the, the, the diesel tax, but people really, really objected to his uh, lowering the, the, the tax on very, on very rich people, you know? And more generally, there's a concern about, about tax fairness, and clearly competition within Europe has led to taxes on corporations falling, and that means that inevitably somebody else has got to pay the bill, so that somebody's going to be the worker, you know, or it could be higher VAT, which is also going to be paid for by ordinary people. So, you know, uh, there may be issues there and, and maybe Irish people need to think about uh, whether we're making things better or worse there. And it's not even just, of course, about the, the stated corporate tax rates. It's about whether people are actually paying the corporate tax rates that they're supposed to be paying, which isn't always the case. And then, of course, there was the Eurozone crisis. Uh, that was not a case where Europe was protecting people. It seemed to many people at the time this was a case where Europe was actually making things worse 
So, uh, of course, the, the you know, post-layman uh, was bad times everywhere, but the U.S. had recovered uh, to its uh, pre-crisis peak by 2011. The U.K. had recovered by 2012. The Eurozone, if you take out Germany, had only recovered by 2016. And in per capita terms, Europe without the Germany, German economy had only recovered by 2017. And that's a lost decade. That's utterly pathetic. And it has a lot to do with the policies that were pursued uh, uh, during that crisis. And finally, there's um, a problem that was always a problem, potentially, uh, for the traditional Europe, which was that because it's about a single market, it's about rules that are impartially enforced. Uh, and so you have key actors being the commission that enforces the rules and the court that makes sure that the rules are enforced. It's a sort of technocratic enterprise and there have been rules, worries, as you know, about democratic deficits and these worries clearly help feed into the Brexit vote and they clearly feed into Euroscepticism everywhere. And what, one of the things that happened during the Eurozone crisis is that that kind of technocratic uh, attitude kind of stretched, uh, extended into areas where it has no business belonging. You know, so it's one thing to regulate the market for asparagus. It's another thing to decide uh, whether the Irish government should be allowed to burn bondholders in bankrupt banks. You know, that's not a matter for a technocrat to deal with. That's a political uh, matter. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that is a major problem as well. Finally, thirdly, Brexit shows us how the EU has, has changed. Uh, and it's changed largely because it's no longer just about rules. It's much more political. So, I mean, what would the rules say about the Northern Irish border after Brexit? It's very clear there should be a border, full stop. That's, that's what the rules would say. And if we haven't taken that attitude, it's because it's not just about rules anymore. It's become much more uh, political. So there was a political decision taken, not by the Commission, right, but by the heads of government and state of the 27 by the European Council. You know, we do not think that this is a risk worth taking, so we're going to try to sort it out. Uh, somehow. It was a political decision taken by a political body, the European Council, uh, for political reasons, you know. And I suppose one, if you want to be positive, uh, if you want to be positive, one positive aspect of this is that when the 27 heads of state take a decision like that, it's kind of difficult to accuse Europe of acting uh, in an undemocratic way because these people are the elected leaders of their, of their countries. And if they're deciding something unanimously, that seems to have a certain amount of authority uh, attached uh, to it. But the European Council is increasingly having to take these decisions that are uh, born at times of crisis. And that's, I suppose, because, uh, because of borders more generally. We have a border with the UK that we need to worry about. We also have a border with Russia that we might need to worry about. Uh, we have a border with the Ukraine that we have to worry about. Uh, we have a border with the Mediterranean and with uh, Africa uh, to worry about, and there are migrants to worry about, and so on. And so inevitably, Europe is now having expanded, you know, just about as far as it can. You know, we're now bumping into the natural borders of Europe, and that means that we now have to interact with the rest of the world. And it turns out that we live in a pretty dangerous neighborhood. And we now need to worry about our own interests and our own cohesion. And that is maybe uncomfortable, especially for people in Ireland who've been used to sheltering behind an umbrella 
of behind an umbrella. So sheltering behind, first of all, we're very far from anywhere. Secondly, we're behind the UK. And thirdly, the UK is part of NATO. And we can sort of assume that all of this stuff is, is up to other people and we can be holier than thou. Because, um, of course, the, 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 the difficult point is that, you know, the EU is based on values. It's based on liberal internationalism and all that kind of stuff. But once you get into these other sorts of more geopolitical issues, then you're not going to be able to keep your hands clean. Uh, you're going to have to uh, sometimes make compromises that you wouldn't necessarily want to make. So, for example, Europe stumbles into the Ukraine crisis, helps to create the Ukraine crisis, actually, in some ways. Uh, but, then, but, then, but then they end up sorting it out. In, well, not, they don't sort it out, but they end up negotiating ceasefires. And then you're necessarily dealing with pretty unpleasant people, uh, and you're, you're behaving like any power would behave. And that's going to be a difficult psychological transition for Europe to make. And it's going to be especially difficult for people like ourselves in Ireland because, you know, we've been able to keep well away from, 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 from all of that. But, keep, but, but that's where we are right now. So there is an agenda. The agenda has got to do with dealing with the failures of the past. There's a big, big monetary union agenda. We still don't have a proper monetary union. We have a sort of a banking union, but we actually don't. We don't have deposit insurance which means that the next time a crisis hits, there will be uh, potential bank withdrawals and, you know, uh, runs on countries. Uh, and so, you know, we end up potentially in a situation where we could have uh, Greek or Cypriot-style crises in the future. Uh, clearly, a single currency, we'd be better off if there was a, a common treasury. I think that's a mainstream economic view. So I would say that the French are right on this, you know, and the Germans are wrong. And I would say that the Hanseatic League is wrong as well. Uh, uh, what I would also say uh, to an Irish audience is that, uh, of course, if you have a common fund that can then help to cushion out shocks in a complex monetary union in the event of a major crisis, that's going to take common taxation. We're allergic to that, but can I just suggest that if we gave uh, Brussels uh, a common tax, which could be on corporate profits, well, that might take the pressure off ourselves in terms of what we choose to do with our own state-level corporate profits tax rate. You know, if, if everybody was paying 3% or something into the kitty, we'd probably get away with 12.5% and we'd retain our advantage. So I actually don't necessarily think it would be that bad for us. And, you know, if we're in this bloody monetary union, we have an interest in making the thing work, you know, because one thing that we know is that there's always unexpected crises just around uh, the corner, you know. Um, I've already talked about tax fairness. Uh, we also need to do something about the demographic, de the demographic deficit, uh, uh, clearly, and, and we need to figure out ways of, of, of getting, you know, the parliament would be an obvious place for an opposition, but the problem is the parliament, they're all, you know, their big interest is federalism, and then there's the commission, their big interest is federalism, so you need the parliament to actually start giving out about whatever the policies are that are being adopted by the states uh, uh, in, in a more vocal manner, because, because there is a problem there, we shouldn't deny it. Um, Finally, um, yes, so we need a Europe that protects Europeans, I suppose. We need a more effective monetary union, we need a more effective regional policy, and so on. But we also, I mean, unfortunately, need to protect Europe itself. And, and as Kevin Whelan mentioned, I mean, that's potentially going to be more complicated now because we can't necessarily rely on the Trump umbrella anymore. And that is one thing that really does seem to have changed over the last a uh, couple of years, and it seems that the Germans in particular, who've always been understandably nervous about doing anything that might uh, make you think about power politics, I mean, they're now beginning to think, look, you know, we can't actually outsource all of this to the Americans. We maybe do have to uh, take responsibilities for our own security. Again, that is 
very difficult for Ireland to swallow, but look at who our chief supporters have been throughout this Brexit crisis. It's been the Baltic countries. It's been, it's been France. You know, uh, we, we've positioned ourselves very cleverly, I think, in terms of becoming members of this new Hanseatic League. I don't agree with their economics, but I think geopolitically it makes perfect sense. But, you know, what is in it for the Balts? You know, to, to give us a, a dig out on the border. Well, we know what's in it for the Bolts, right? You know, they're, they're in a dangerous part of the world and solidarity is very much in their interests. Um, and so that's then the, the, just the final point that I'd make. A Europe that takes care of itself and that acts more geopolitically and that worries about its own security and that doesn't outsource everything to America and that tries to retain some European sovereignty about, for example, Iranian sanctions or whatever else it might be, doesn't necessarily have to be a federal Europe. Right? That, that doesn't follow at all. You know? Actually, the European Council that, that makes the running on this, that's very much a, a union of countries. You know? So, so we, shouldn't, we shouldn't assume that just because uh, we're going to act more in unison, or we, if we do, that, that means we're more federal. No, it means that we're a union of, 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 of sovereign member states who are, who are acting in each other's best interests. Two final thoughts. Um, about Ireland and about... The UK in this, I mean, uh, the, the old Irish allergy to NATO membership was this, was this border thing. But now we're going to be talking about potentially getting more involved in security and defense types of arrangements uh, with a Europe that doesn't involve the UK. I mean, I just, I just, that strikes me as interesting. Yeah. I don't know what you do with that. It just strikes me as an interesting change. But I think it's, there's an even bigger issue for the UK in a way, because the UK has always wanted to have multiple sets of relationships with, with Europe, with uh, the ex-Commonwealth, with the USA. You think about Churchill and his interlocking circles and so on. Um, but what now if Europe now does drift further away from the US, maybe because the US is drifting further away from Europe, and that's certainly the way things are going now with Donald Trump. I mean, so long as the, U the UK is in Europe, it can stop that drift. It can try to anchor us to the US. It won't be able to do that anymore from the outside. And so you then end up with possible scenarios in which European interests and US interests are fundamentally yeah, at odds with each other on some issue. And then the question will be, Whose side is the UK on? So I think that actually for the UK, uh, you know, they are necessary. They are now going to have to make choices in the future potentially that they would rather uh, not make. So, so it's dangerous times ahead. I think. Thank you very much, Kevin. Final speaker in our session, and before we start our Q and A, dear Johanna, and uh, delighted to have you here and welcome you from University of Ulster. She's professor of social policy at, at UU. She's a member of the Irish Council of State, and and has a very insightful political commentator in various different venues. Um, she's also a columnist for the Sunday Business Post. <clears throat> she's been a former Pro Vice Chancellor for Communications and Provost of the McGee and Coleraine campuses of Ulster University. She was co-chair of the Heenan Anderson Commission on intergenerational poverty established by the Labour Party in 2014, and she's written extensively, particularly on devolution and health policy. So, Deirdre, welcome. Uh, there is a handout going around. Uh, I thought we were going to PowerPoint. It doesn't really matter whether you get it or not, but it may give you more detail. Yeah. And that is to be blamed on the accidental death of an animal. But that's okay, uh, you because, know, you know, no one wants death by PowerPoint, do they? I, I understand that, and I purposely made mine very colourful so that it would engage you, but hey, you will get a copy. <laughs> uh, and I suppose I'd start off with Monty Python by saying, now for something completely different, because I was asked to talk around the impact of the EU on society. 
in Ireland, in Britain. And I did think about talking about the impact of the EU on higher education, Horizon 2020, uh, the fact that we are global researchers, that we attract global talent. But I think someone else is talking about that. And to be honest, I've said that so many times, I thought, I don't want to say that again. I've had that conversation. Then I thought I'd talk about the impact of the EU and Brexit on our local devolved situation. But I knew Steve was here, and he might start throwing things at me if I said, you know, we have no government. <laughs> and uh, it's about how Brexit has impacted on our zero-sum politics and how we We've become more polarised and all of that I think will be discussed and I suppose you could talk about poverty and deprivation but for me um, I am writing largely around devolution at the moment and health and social care so myself and a colleague are writing a book to say is there still an NHS 20 years after devolution have we developed our own models can we say that Northern Ireland has a separate system a better system and what then has the impact of the EU been so that's what I want to take 10 minutes to discuss. And I suppose when I thought about discussing that, I thought the reason really why I think it is important to say it is because in the EU, member states, uh, for member states, uh, health is a matter of national responsibility and not deemed to be an area of major EU competence. So for all of the conferences I have been in the last two years, bar one, health has been mentioned and then early dismissed people saying, well, health is at the fringes. Let's talk about the border. Let's talk about trade. Let's talk about the backstop. Let's talk about all of these things. But health isn't really important. And I suppose if I could even take 10 minutes this morning to challenge that perception and to talk about how the EU has impacted on health north and south of this island. Um, and as I said, the EU's role is to be supportive in the delivery of health and social care. Not to dictate, not to directly deliver, but to be there as a supportive system. You will know that, as I said earlier, in the UK, health and social care is a wholly devolved matter. Um, while I don't want to labour the point, I think it is worth saying that in Northern Ireland, we've had no government for two years. We're in a period of stagnation, and decay. Um, people who are on the airwaves on a daily basis saying we have to get this government back up and running because look at the crisis in our health, look at the waiting lists, look at what's happening, it isn't good enough. I say to them you have a fairly short memory because look at what was delivered in the 10 years of stable devolution. In terms of health and social care, huge promises, but in terms of delivery, well, if you were marking it as a school report, I would say poor, and that's being generous. Why? Because in those years, we had nine, yes, nine major reviews of health and social care. So what our politicians were very fond of doing, were bringing in experts. I know this is the world where we talk about experts in inverted commas now. Uh, so we brought in experts to tell us what we needed to do. And review followed review. And those reviews, surprise, surprise, told us largely the same thing. That we had a period of 30 years of direct rule where really modernisation had not happened in health and social care. And you would hardly be surprised when people were coming over from London, flying in for two days a week. They didn't have the appetite to transform. It was basically keep this show on the road. Um, then when we had devolved government, 
people didn't have the capacity to think, how do we change this hugely complex system? What are we going to do with it? So those nine reports told us what we needed to do to move services into the community, to have much more focus on mental health, early intervention, prevention. But for us and our devolved government, it was basically around parish pump politics. So it was all well and good to change a service except when it was in your backyard, because that affects your votes. There was no discussion about outcomes, better outcomes, how we could have a long-term strategic plan for health. Um, so in terms of the EU, I could talk about workforce issues, um, how we've attracted talent and how that might be impacted around Brexit. I could talk about the mutual recognition of qualifications and what's going to happen after Brexit. We're not quite sure. We're working on it. I could talk about the freedom of movement and in the border areas in particular. And I could talk about procurement. But I wanted to focus in this session, and that is what the handout is on, on an organisation called Cross-Border Cooperation. And it's about caught cross-border cooperation and working together. What is that organisation and how has it been impacted by membership of the EU? What has it delivered? And I think what I'd like you to go away with is it's not just that it has delivered tangible outcomes. But having that umbrella of the EU and EU funding programmes has allowed us to cooperate and collaborate across this island in a way that simply wouldn't have happened without that umbrella, without that security blanket that said, this is not about Dublin interfering and what's going on in border regions or we will have to tell them to take a hike. This is about the EU and better outcomes and how we can collaborate to get a better outcome. So what I would suggest is certain projects in terms of cross-border health have been substantially uh, bettered because of our impact of the European Union. We have significantly better outcomes and they will be detrimentally impacted by withdrawal from the EU. So if you got the handout, you can see that COT, since its inception in 1992, has created and sustained a variety of EU-funded cross-border projects, cross-border services, enhanced service provision, particularly at border areas, which we would associate with deprivation, and many rurally isolated areas have services delivered that they wouldn't have had otherwise. COT has gone from a very informal relation to an effective cross-border delivery and implementation structure with a number of partner organisations. So it's not just that we have North and South working together, we now have input from Scotland, we have the public sector working with the private sector, we have the public sector working hand in glove with voluntary and community organisations, delivering services where they are needed, using local information. <coughs> so COD has managed a range of cross-border health and social care programmes, um, in 2014 to 15, it was awarded 24 million. It has been awarded another 30 million from 2017 to 2022. So it is huge scale EU funding. In the first part um, from 2014, there were 12 large scale strategic health and social care projects. And they were delivered by COT, but also in partnership with local 
voluntary and community sector organisations, giving them strength, giving them stability, giving them relatively long-term funding, but also using their experience and their expertise by working and living in the community. I won't read them all out, as I say, you have a handout, but some of them included telehealth, autism support, support for people with eating disorders. So very often the projects that caught supported were the projects that weren't deemed to be mainstream health and social care, but were deemed to be at the fringes. So they are hugely important in their own right. They have, well, I think they've all had favorable reviews. There is very little negativity around those projects and what they've delivered. But also, I think what is important to say about that cross-border working together project is that it has encouraged further integration. It has encouraged the idea that we must pool our resources in health and social care, that it is a nonsense to have services sitting in Derry that cannot be accessed by people living in Donegal. It's a nonsense to talk about heart services in Belfast that we don't have the capacity to deliver and look instead at how we can have those cross-border discussions. It seems to make a lot of sense, but when you put it in the context of very toxic relationships in North, between the political parties, COT provided a safe vehicle for that partnership to, to develop and deliver, a safe space to talk about how do we provide value for money in a time of limited resources, but also, I think, hugely important, thanks to the EU funding, in terms of health and social care in the North, we have no think tanks. We have no Nuffield Trust. We have no King's Fund. We have no space to say, how do we develop innovation, deliver it on the ground, and very quickly, perhaps in a 12-week process, decide this is working? No, this isn't working. We need to stop it. Someone once said that the health and social care system in Northern Ireland had more pilots than EasyJet. And uh, I think that probably was a fair comment. But how innovation worked in the North was you got a three-year funding for a project. No one went in after 12 weeks and said, this is an absolute nonsense. There are unintended consequences. It simply isn't working in the way we thought it would. It just went on for that three-year period. <coughs> After the three-year period when someone said, actually, this was absolutely fantastic, there's no money to mainstream it. And it seemed so perverse to develop policy in that way. COT challenged that. So what I think is hugely important about that EU funding is it gave a space for innovation, a safe space to talk about creativity, talk about proof of concept. People came along with ideas and said, I think this might work. Um, there was support for writing proposals to the EU around the area of health, support for testing. So we developed a collaborative culture, a culture of saying this might work. And where is the big um, bonus point out of that EU-funded project? Many of the projects that they designed and delivered have been mainstreamed into our health and social care system. And it's very difficult to see at the moment in a health and social care system that's under huge pressures, where we would find that space for innovation, where we would find that space for discussion. So in Northern Ireland, for example, um, and I don't want to sound, I know health is an issue in the South as well, but our waiting lists have spiralled out of control. So for example, in England and Scotland, 
No, in England and Wales combined, 7.3 thousand people are waiting one year or more to see a consultant as an outpatient. 7.3 thousand people. Northern Ireland, how many do you think are waiting currently more than a year to see an outpatient consultant for their first appointment? More than England and Wales combined? More than that 7.3 thousand people? Yeah, the last figure was about 108,000 people in Northern Ireland are waiting more than a year. Our health system is in crisis. Every single target that our health and social care boards have, trusts, every single target was breached. And there is a real worry about a lack of accountability, a system that's spiraling out of control, and a move towards a two-tier system, where, quite frankly, if mummy needs hip replacements or you need health replacements, you're going to go to the private sector and then join the NHS somewhere down the line. Um, so when we talk about inequalities and deprivation, there are huge issues in our current health and social care system that we just seem simply unable to address. The other thing about the EU funding, it allowed us to develop new areas around the issue of mental health. So we've been talking about mental health as an issue in the North for the last 20 years. But again, we're very good at talking and very poor at delivering interventions that we know the evidence suggests might work. So, for example, more people have died in the North since the Troubles, in the, in the 20 years since the Troubles, more people have died by suicide than died during the period of the Troubles. That's a shocking statistic. We talk about it, we know it's dreadful, we shake our heads, but we don't have a mental health strategy. We don't have a mental health champion. We have under-resourced community services. Yet the, the projects from COT, the projects that have had EU funding, have allowed us to say that we need to have much more focus on services at the level of the community and deal with issues in a proactive way. So I think mainstreaming is a huge issue. But then also to say, it is noteworthy that there are other cross-border projects that don't rely on EU funding, such as the Cancer Centre at Otnagelvin, which has been a huge success, uh, such as the heart um, surgery that goes on north and south. And yes, they were not part of EU funding, but that EU project, that COT project, those people working together, forming relationships, forming trust, understanding need, understanding the compatibility of services allowed those projects to go ahead. They were providing the groundwork, providing the landscape. Uh, and you'll know that the Radiotherapy Centre opened in Altmagelvin in 2016. And we now have All-Ireland Children's Heart Surgery. So in conclusion, what has the EU ever done for us in terms of health and social care? Quite a lot, I would say. It's just not well recognised. Thank you. Yeah, if you could join us here. Thanks very much. Thank you for a fascinating panel. And we've ranged uh, over this kind of triangulation and set of relationships here. Um, the economic, but also a very profound case study, if you like, about interaction and some of the benefits there.
So there are plenty of issues to, to raise and discuss. I open the floor to people to uh, take up questions and comments and interventions. One time. Steve. Yeah, yep. uh, sir, thank you very much, Steve, for all the panellists. And uh, you know, Deirdre and I will sort of uh, have the views of gloom and doom in all the despondency. But actually, it's one of the questions I wanted to put to Kevin. Um, obviously, one of the big issues of Europe is Europe has always been a security construct, even though many people in Britain have never really realised that. But for Ireland going forward, there are real issues that need to be resolved. And particularly what I call the, I used to be, and I'll put my hand up here on a declarative way, I worked with the Irish government when they produced the first defence white paper as a consultant. And there was a big discussion about the three ends. I could work out what the third one was, but I'll talk about it in a second. One was neutrality. The second one was NATO. And the third one was the notes of the three locks of the UN and the rest of it and where it leads to as well. And there was an expectation amongst the people in the audience, and particularly in the political class within Ireland, that in somehow they would be able to resolve those issues and maintain their neutrality. And for instance, they kept on quoting to me the example of Sweden and whatever it is. And I said to them very clearly, Sweden is the only country I ever worked with, and having been in the military for over 30 years, that actually had all the NATO publications up to date, and it wasn't even in NATO. And the fact that Ireland has to look very closely at increasing its security and defence spending to close to 2% of GDP, and the impact that's going to be, because you quite rightly talk about the challenges on the challenges coming from the East and the positions of the Hanseatic League, and those reasons as well. So I'd just like you to explore a bit further how Ireland is actually going to have to get beyond its neutrality piece, because Ireland isn't neutral, and I don't care what anybody says. When Mike Pence goes to go and visit US troops traveling back and forth from the United States to the Middle East, he doesn't do it in the Middle East. He doesn't do it at Andrews Air Force Base. He does it in Shannon. Ireland is not neutral. So when is Ireland going to take the grown-up decision when it realises it has to join NATO and has to move more towards a security, proper security construct? Well, I mean, I know I raised the issue. I'm not, I'm not an expert like, like you obviously are. But I wonder if the way that we're heading maybe helps us wriggle off of various hooks because if it becomes an EU-wide thing, yeah. then NATO isn't involved or maybe we can sort of claim this is an EU thing, it's not a NATO thing. And, and maybe that makes it easier for us, especially because the Swedes are so keen on it and, and the Finns are probably very keen on it and, and, and so on. You know, we, we, we already, we were participating in the Mediterranean uh, with an Irish hat on. And then if I understand correctly, at some point um, the Irish hat was taken off and an EU hat was put on our ships down there without too much fuss being made about it. But in a sense, that was quite an, an interesting um, thing wasn't it? And one thing that I, 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 I remember seeing a poll after Brexit, and they, were, they, they asked Irish people what you feel about getting involved in uh, European defence initiatives. I remember being shocked by how many people seem to be okay with it. So I'm wondering actually whether the whole Brexit thing is changing attitudes here a little bit because we can. We, yeah, we can see that there are security might matter. You know, we don't want uh, instability to happen here, and we can hardly ask other people for their support if we're not willing to to reciprocate. You know, um, I wonder also if the the intergovernmental nature of it, because the European Council, I mean, is if if, if we do these things like the, the the Mediterranean stuff, I guess that's all been European Council driven. So it's 
that's very intergovernmental, so, so everybody has a, a veto. I wonder if that also makes it easier from a theological point of view, because it's our govern, government in a sovereign manner agreeing to something with other sovereign governments, so maybe there aren't quite the same political sensitivities. Yeah, Mary, you want to come yeah. in? Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think it is an issue that, that, Ireland, that Ireland needs to debate and work out a clear position on. It's been... It was... It was a serious issue in the in the in the in, you know in in the defeat of both Nice and Lisbon came up and it, it was actually critical. It was used as a red herring. Um, we have never seriously confronted what neutrality means. I I would agree with you. I don't regard us as neutral. I once had a student cry in my MA seminar. He was an older student when I confronted the class with the documents from Irish, foreign, Irish documents in the early 1950s where effectively Sean McBride said if, if the United States will work for a, a, with, a, a, with Ireland to get partition removed, we will join NATO tomorrow. Uh, and this man uh, broke down and cried because this destroyed all his <laughs> fantasies. And we have, uh, there, has, there has been a lack of maturity, yeah. I think, about the debates over it. I was quite surprised the way Pesca went through with much less, uh, you know, a confrontation uh, in Dolairn uh, than, uh, than one might have anticipated. So I think, I don't think it's going to be NATO. I think, I agree with Kevin. I, th I, th I think uh, I think the ground is shifting various ways and it, it, it probably, it probably won't be necessary to join NATO. Uh, it'll probably be more in a EU, EU context, but it is something that, Dan, would you like to organise something on this? <laughs> <laughs> Where's Catherine? Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry, our, next, our next move, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Other comments and questions? Yeah. Nicholas, yeah. Okay, a point uh, for Deirdre, and you're quite correct in saying that the EU, generally speaking, doesn't leave it to the individual nations mm -hmm. to look after their health policy. Mm -hmm. But the EU invests enormously in health research. It does. Uh, and we'll do so in the next round of research funding as yeah. well. And they're looking at the big budget factors in relation to cancer care and matters of that kind. Mm -hmm. So if there's a no-deal Brexit, Britain is immediately going to be eliminated from that, and there's going to be a huge impoverishment for European research, mm -hmm. because in relation to the area of cancer research, Britain is really ahead of the field mm -hmm. of, all, of anybody else in Europe in any event. So that, in that sense, it would be a huge loss for Europe. It's, it's a huge loss for us in any case. I didn't want to talk about research and research funding, but obviously we're involved in Horizon 2020. We punch above our weight because of Horizon 2020 and we can be part of international collaborations. Now, we've been told that the funding will continue, but I can tell you anecdotally about many colleagues who've been told, well, you know, yes, your work's very interesting, but we don't know if we can partner with you because in the long term, we've no idea where your standing is going to be. And if you have a choice between someone in the two universities in the north or someone sitting elsewhere, the reality is you're going to go for that security. So the <coughs> losses, some of the losses are tangibles, but I think what we really need to understand is some of the less quantifiable things mm. such as our... Uh, collaboration, our partnerships, our formal and informal for partnerships and our access to facilities that may start to be eroded after, I know, certainly after a no-deal Brexit. 
If I could pick up on this major question about whether, it's a question, I suppose, for Kevin, but for really for all of us, of whether the EU is, is likely to take this as an opportunity for reform. I mean, the shock of, <clears throat> of Brexit was, uh, there's an invitation there in one sense. Um, is, it, is it really going to be a moment in which it looks so unpleasant to extract yourself from this entity that, that that's really the message, <coughs> and that the political entity itself and all of its apparatuses and so on will not then respond to what, what is a political crisis? I don't know, are you, are you optimistic or are you... Well, I mean, they did, they did in 2016 have a couple of summits and so on uh, talking about what should we do to make sure this doesn't happen again. So there was a bit of self-reflection. They came up with this kind of theme of, you know, the Europe that protects, you know, which I, mm. I talked about. But, I mean, that is, that is, like I said, one of the promises of Europe, but it's been as honoured in the breaches and the mm -hmm. observance you feel. Um, but they're aware of it. But then on the other hand, you know, they do that. Macron was very keen on this. I mean, Macron's a great rhetorician. You know, he made that, that famous speech and he absolutely nailed it. But then he goes and then domestically puts, puts, puts a fuel tax on diesel, um, which uh, I get. I mean, I, I worry about climate change, but the bottom line is you, you, people down the country, uh, they have to travel 40 miles daily for work. Yeah. They all have diesel cars because that's what they were told to get. Yeah. Uh, they can't afford to buy Electra or Lexus or whatever, you know. Uh, you know uh, so, uh, and, and then he got rid of the tax on the very rich. Yeah. Like Olon says, you know, it's not true to say that he's a president for the rich, he's a president for the very rich, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, 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 so on the one hand, they talk about this stuff, and on the other hand, and that's exactly what led to the, the, gilet, the gilet jaune that's now morphing into something incredibly unpleasant, actually. Yeah. You know, it's not just... It's not just yeah. Uh, mm. people who mm. are mm. having a hard time with it economically, there's anti-Semitism, there's yeah. all mm. sorts of stuff coming out of, of the woodwork there. So, yeah. And it's been be, be pick, picked up in the UK on the, on the right, are adopting the yellow fasts as, as it's now as this kind of symbol that can mobilize a variety of Street fights in Paris between the ultra-left and the ultra-right. Uh, yeah. 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 so, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's not just them. That's why it's so important that we're, we're not hubristic and that yeah. we yeah. not look up our noses at, yeah. at the British yeah. as if they're some sort of, a, I mean, a, a, a weird exception. I mean, it's, yeah. and, and Italy, you know, yeah. France is, is bad enough. Italy yeah. is really worrying, yeah. Yeah. actually. And it's not just worrying because of the politics of it. It's worrying yeah. because of the size of their debt. Yeah. It's worrying because they haven't really grown ever since they joined the euro. Yeah. No, mm -hmm. there's not necessarily cause and effect there, but it's a fact that yeah. they basically haven't grown since yeah. they left the euro. That's why Portugal ended up in a program. It wasn't because they were running up big deficits all the time. It was because if you just don't grow, then the debt right. becomes more mm. important as a, a, a relative yeah. to GDP. And, you know, uh, Italy is too big to... To fail is too big to save. It's just a huge problem. We, don't, we won't know how to deal with it if it happens. Yeah, certainly the figures you were giving about uh, the recovery rate, so to speak, yeah. after the financial crisis are rather, rather striking. So, yeah. yeah. Other questions? Uh, Terry, I think. <coughs> I guess this is more a personal curiosity than anything else, but I wanted to ask Kevin uh, whether or not, in light of the various um, deficits which you described in terms of EU economic policy making, uh, whether those are the result of a natural lag perhaps in, in terms of getting institutions in place, or whether they're perhaps more likely a set of deliberate decisions in the tradition of uh, German ordo-liberalism 
and that you have a fundamental philosophical difference, uh, say, between the German traditions and the French traditions. And in the movement from uh, the EEC to the EU, um, that balance tipped uh, in the German direction. And that's why we don't have a treasury in Europe, for instance. Yeah, it's, you're basically asking about rules versus discretion, you know, and yeah. the Germans like the rules and the French yeah. like the discretion. And, uh, well, it's a debate within economics as well, you know, on the right people like rules and Keynesians like, like discretion, you know. And I, mean, I think rules are fine so long as you are prepared to break them when, when you need to, you know, <laughs> I suppose, would be the, the pragmatic middle, middle ground view. Um, yeah, but, you know, on the other hand, there, is, there has been some movement, because, I mean, the, Europe, the Germans got the, got the central bank that they wanted. They, it was ultra-independent. It was only supposed to care about inflation. You know, but then some people, if you're in Germany now, would say, well, this ultra-independent central bank is evolving in a way that we don't like, and actually we'd like to have a bit, bit more control of it. It hasn't evolved nearly far enough for my taste. But, I mean, I think if you want to be pessimistic about the future, you would say Mario Draghi made a huge difference for the better when he came in in 2012, because Trichet was an absolute <coughs> disaster, in, in my view. And he's going to be replaced now. Mm-hmm. And we don't know who he's going to be replaced by, you know, and I mean, if he's replaced by somebody who's more rule-bound, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, and then if we have something bad happen in Italy or whatever, mm-hmm. that could be quite dangerous, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, uh, it'll come to you. John first, yeah. <coughs> Just, uh, thanks very much for your discussion. I mean, the title of this module is The European Project, and uh, all I know about great project outcomes is they're led by somebody. You know, the first thing we do is we pick a leader to lead the project and a leadership team to lead the project. I'm struggling to see what the leadership team for the European project is these days. We're about to go to the polls on 24 May and have a bunch of European elections, which are kind of significant to our relationship with Europe. And already, you know, as before the hostings have even begun, we're playing party politics with it. We're mm-hmm. yeah. jockeying for nothing personal, but fairly making those representation in something extraordinarily important to us. And because we've kind of taken our eye off the European ball for the last two and a half years, necessarily, um, we're, we're going to wake up, you know, around about June and suddenly realise we're kind of on our own in this European project and we don't know who's running it and we don't know what it's trying to achieve. And like on a serious level, our next of kin coming after us mm-hmm. are, are going to wonder what the hell did we do in this phase that mm-hmm. put them at so much risk and at so much lost opportunity. So who's running the European project and what are we going to do about that? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, <laughs> takers on that challenging question. Uh, well, I, I just started. I mean, I was struck there was that there was a panel that I mean, Mary was involved in it there in the Royal Irish Academy, looking at a hundred years since since the nineteen eighteen general election, and there was a whole day of, of elect, elections and politicians' representations. Nobody once mentioned the European Parliament, not once during the entire day, and. Uh, I, I think there there is, I mean, I, li- I like what Kevin said about about the Council of Ministers and the fact that uh, we argued that there's democratic deficit yet these are the heads of all the of of all the of all the states, but I th- I think the European Parliament is a project that does require serious. Uh, retooling and consideration. There's a communications deficit. There's the fact that the nature of the electorates is such that it's fought on almost any issue barring Europe. Uh, and <laughs> yet, 
it, 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 it is supposedly an assembly that uh, where all the nations come together to debate matters of common interest. But uh, it, there, there is a serious piece of work to be done. Uh, every so often when I do think of it myself, I realise my ignorance as to what's going on is, you know, Fairly substantial. It's yeah. it's not something that impact impinges on, on on our lives. So I think, as far as who's running it at the moment, I think it has been run by the by the council ministers, heads heads of state. I think though, when we had the campaign in the north to leave or remain, what was very clear was the very low level of knowledge about the European Union, and that is probably the biggest understatement that I will make. <laughs> yeah. um, the level of debate, the detail of the debate, um, the misinformation, the mm. fake news that, to be frank, the media couldn't challenge, that was taken as a fact, mm. The people went away thinking, well, if that's what the EU do, I certainly don't want them anymore. Um, and how actually it became very clear that the EU and people who supported the EU and people who had been beneficiaries of the EU couldn't articulate in a way that impacted on people emotionally, particularly. So it's one thing to talk about economics and all this stuff, but at an emotional level, people thought it was a bad thing. So you went away and you had lecture theatres full of students coming out with Daily Mail rhetoric about our jobs, stealing our opportunities, which was absolute nonsense. And so I go back to the point that Mary made, and I always go back to it, the communication around what the EU does, the opportunities, the beneficiaries, look around you and see how the world has changed because of the EU, very poorly communicated, very poorly understood. So, I mean... If it's if it's normal everyday kind of politics, then you know the commission is important because it has the power to initiate policies, right? But once you're up against the limits of what you can do, and then you're changing the parameters of thing, then then the commission is no longer in in, in the driving seat. Then it's got to be the governments, right? So I do think the European Council is is the more important locus right now if we think we need to reorient ourselves in various ways. So you know, something like Tusk is going to be more important than. Than, 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 than Juncker in, in some ways. Can I just actually give a little uh, plug to a book that I've been reading on the way now? It's, it's coming out in English, I think, next month. And it's, he's, he's party pre. I mean, he's not, he's not um, uh, unbiased. He was the speechwriter for uh, Van Rompuy. But he's a Dutch political scientist, so he kind of very much thinks the council is... It's, where that, is that, it's actually a brilliant, a brilliant book about where, where Europe's going, going right now. What's the you, title, it, sorry? It's... it's, it's when Europe improvises, so I think it's going to be in English. It's going to be something like alarms and ex alarms and excursions, or something. and then when Europe improvises, if you get if you can get past the rather northern European view of the eurozone crisis, where he thinks that they you know responded to it effectively, which well, is a okay. bit hard to swallow, yeah, yeah. you know. But I mean, it, it's very insightful actually yeah. about a lot of these kind of institutional, I mean, institutional things. I mean, in, yeah. in, ter in terms of buildings, greater understanding, Erasmus. Yeah. Should must have helped, and I mean, um, there's now I don't know. I think there's there's somewhere between one and two million uh, babies in this world who are the products of a, of of couples that met via Erasmus, and uh -huh. it it has created 
what Theresa May calls the citizens of no country. And I think we all know lots of such people. We, you know, we, I think we, we move in those court. My family's part of it. But uh, I think there, there is a serious need to get down into the level of the communities. And I think, Kevin, I was struck you know, by your response to what I'd said about your father. A regional, the regional dimension is arguably one of the most critical mm. for Europe and getting into the regions, you know, the Gilets Jaunes regions and all, 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 all the other regions. And, I mean, I happen to have a brother who's in Brussels and one of the comments he made to me recently was that a, in the UK, it, that Whitehall was not funneling regional concerns into mm. Brussels or communications back from Brussels as to what uh, Europe could do for the regions. The regions did, like the North, they did open offices there, including Boris Johnson around a very, you know, fairly major office for London in, in Brussels, uh, because they had to bypass uh, Whitehall. But then with the cuts in local authority funding, all those conduits were withdrawn. But but I think one of the things, I mean, one of the theories about, about Europe was that the nation state would become less significant and therefore, uh, in many ways, certain powers, influences, interests could be reflected at a regional level. And But to go back to the Erasmus... Maybe, maybe that needs to be re reignited. <coughs> yeah, but to go back to the Erasmus bit, mm -hmm. in those initial discussions, mm -hmm. Erasmus was understood as giving middle-class children... Mm -hmm opportunities to travel abroad yes. well really mm. you know how mm. much sympathy you're going to garner there mm. but when you actually talked about Erasmus funded projects going mm. into working class areas yeah. in North Belfast going mm. into children and saying to them here are leadership skills here are people that mm. you can become engaged mm. with most fundamentally here are networks mm. that you know nothing about that can actually give you life-changing opportunities mm. that's the reality of Erasmus but it is not how it was understood. And when we've had a discussion just last week about it may be ending, the radio phone-ins were like, oh, well, you know, we've just very limited sympathy for these mm -hmm. elites who have lots of opportunities anyway. So it is completely misconstrued. And I suppose the question is, whose fault's that? Is it ours, maybe? Just, just two quick more things. I mean, one answer to your question would have been Merkel, but of course she's not there and going to be there very much longer. And is that a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, I'm not so sure it's a bad thing because she's been incredibly cautious, you know, except mm. that sometimes she has a rush of blood to the head and then she throws Jeez. caution out of the window and, and she's done that on a couple of occasions. And it's not clear actually which is which is worse, you know. Um, but but then, the, then, the other, then the other point was that he makes this point that, I mean, actually there is a European public space that's been kind of developing through all of these crises, you know. So mm. I probably was hooked to the Greek referenda in 2015, mm. waiting up late yeah. at night to Happen. You know, there probably were people who voted for Brexit because they were pissed off about what happened to the Greeks. So in a sense, they were voting for Brexit because they were European enough to care about what were happening to people. It's, it's, there's lots of ironies in this whole story. Yeah. We're coming to a close, so I think I'm going to take, take three questions. I've seen hands, and then we'll, we'll sort of take answer them as we can. So first with you. Okay, thanks. Um, I'd like to thank Deirdre for the focus she brought to looking at issues that affect real people particularly close the border. Mm -hmm. But the level of the project itself, I wonder how well prepared the institutions are to take account of the needs of a, uh, perhaps a million people in the north who will continue to be European Union citizens. Mm -hmm. 
And how are their rights to be vindicated when they're outside of what have been uh, the structures and the way in which rules have been applied? Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think Brendan, yeah. Yeah, my observation, I wonder if the panel consider that one of the takeaways from at least the, the last two presentations, uh, sorry, as late Mary, your presentation, um, is Ireland's going to have to get really good at bilateral and multilateral diplomacy. In other words, not investing all your ships in the United Nations who are busy trying to bribe people to get us onto the United Nations uh, Security Council. Um, or, or everything invested in the European Council in Brussels. Because the, the vignette that you had, that there is, there is successful bilateral health cooperation. So yeah. the, the takeaway from yours is that's going to have to get so good. And you mentioned the Hanseatic League. So we're going to have to, I thought that disappeared sometime in the 1650s. Well, no. <laughs> send somebody over to, to investigate and actually firm up our position on that. So I wonder, would you agree with that? Yeah, and a final question just up here on the balcony. Simon Carzo with the Irish Times. I just wanted to ask you about uh, the developments this week and how you see the sequence of votes um, in the middle of next month. Oh whether that might provide some clarity around the process and whether we'd see agreement by the end of next month or by the end of June. Easy one. Very, yeah, very different. I, I leave it up to you to sort of respond to all or individually the ones that you particularly uh, want to pick up on. There's from the north in the room who are very well equipped to speak to the first first question about Northern Irish yeah. mm. European citizens. Mm. Can you hear yourself or yourself? Yeah. 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 Any thoughts, Deirdre, about this predicament? Well, um, I think I'll hand it over to Katie. As far as I, as far as I know, we haven't actually come to any conclusion as to how this is going to mm. be worked out. It's something that people now understand mm. is an issue. Mm. It's been tied up in all other issues about mm. rights <coughs> and identity and what that actually means. I think there's a growing concern that the people who have EU membership may have some sort of diluted rights mm. and how that will impact on them in general. Mm. And I suppose it goes to the conversation which says, well, you know, we must leave on the same basis as the rest of the UK because we're just as British as the rest of the UK. Well, no matter what way you swing it, Northern Ireland is a different entity. People can't vote to leave, as far as I know, but people in Finchley can't vote to leave. And even though some British MPs think that they have Irish citizenship, as far as I'm aware, they don't unless they apply for it and are accepted. So all of those issues are coming to the fore, but do we have answers? No, I don't think we do. In terms of what's going to happen, um, I think there's a general consensus around, a feeling around that there may be an extension to Article 50, which we have thought for a long time, but I think there's a growing realisation that we will have a deal, that some sort of deal will have to be agreed on, because in the end, the UK are going to do what's good for the UK. And to leave without a deal, uh, there is absolutely no support for it in Parliament. Um, will Mrs May throw either the DUP or the ERG under the bus? Yes, I think she will. Labour have come very late to the party, um, but I think they've come under increasing pressure from their own uh, supporters to say, we cannot countenance the, the mess that we would be in if we left with no deal. Imagine these are the people that have been negotiating for two and a half years, and this is where we are, days away from the final date. How could you imagine those people negotiating a no deal scenario? And I think what has happened in politics in the North that has been particularly interesting around this whole Brexit debate 
is that the business community have found their voice. So for years we've been saying, where are the business community? Why are they not putting their head above the parapet and saying, you may say this, but in fact we're running businesses, we know how many trucks cross the border, we know about paperwork. We actually challenge the view that a number of additional veterinary checks at Larne will somehow have uh, an implication for our sovereignty or our constitutional position. And I suppose the annoying thing for many people in the North is the DUP's position is accepted as Northern Ireland's position across the British media, but no one has asked the direct question, could you please articulate what you believe the benefits of Brexit to be for the people in the North of this island? Because uh, I've never heard it articulated, and are they seriously saying that we're leaving the biggest trading partner that we have because we may someday develop some trading <coughs> uh, agreement with some other person somewhere in the world? Is that seriously their political stance, which goes unchallenged? Yeah. Any further concluding thoughts from uh, Mary or, or Kevin? I don't know what's going to happen, Simon. <laughs> That's different to no comment. I yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know that I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think it, I think it swings literally by the day. Um, but uh, just a couple of observations. I mean, Deirdre, I thought I thought what you said there is very very powerful, and I, I think there obviously are issues that will take some time to work out. The fact that there are so many people with who are Irish citizens, therefore EU citizens, who will be living <coughs> outside the EU, but very adjacent to it. I, I think there are, there are implications there that have to be worked out. Mm. As Health insurance cards, for example, that yeah. comes through your yeah. social security payments, doesn't it? Well, so oh, you won't necessarily get that. But Indeed, if you're an Irish citizen living in London, I mean, if I, if, I, mean, I, I, if I were full-time in Oxford rather than commuting from Dublin, I probably wouldn't get a health insurance card either, would I? Well, uh, the yeah. European card—that—that's yeah. a balance of payments that's it done. Is. That's yeah. done. Uh, that's rec you know they sit down literally in exchange. But, the, but, but you qualify for through paying social insurance, don't you, into a kitty, don't you? No, 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 you don't. Every the problem's not for you. It's if you're an EU citizen who isn't Irish or British when that comes through. That's where the yeah. that's but, where but the, the difficulty is. will be. And that's that's a real issue we're having in Northern Ireland at the moment Cohort. because. We desperately need high-quality workers working in Northern Ireland mm -hmm. from across the EU, yeah. particularly mm -hmm. in the health centre, mm -hmm. agribusiness, pharma, and the rest of it. Mm -hmm. If you're an Irish citizen or you're a British citizen, it's not an issue, and it won't be an issue because of the common travel area and the things in the past. But if you're not, or actually, if you're in my case, you're not actually married. You're married to somebody who isn't British or Irish. What does that mean for yeah. their, their nationality? Mm -hmm. it does. But but I think the health insurance issue does arise because I mean I remember hearing quite a number of people, a, a group of a, a British expats living in Spain, who, some of whom oh, yes, some of whom had a, you know discovered Irish grandmothers, and and a, my sister-in-laws have found Irish grandmothers for a crowd of British expats mm. that that are living down around the. Loire. Is there a secondary market in this? By the way. But basically, but but they were all securing Irish passports in the hope mm. of keeping their 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 European health insurance mm -hmm. a, a alive and whether Irish taxpayers should end up paying a, the health insurance 
uh, the health costs of these pe these people who are resident in Spain to enable them to continue to enjoy this uh, free Spanish health care. I think it's a moot point, and you know these these are all the there's there's so many messy details that are that are that are going to come through in various ways. The one the one comment that has struck me, Deirdre, about you're talking about the DUP. There was a long-standing myth in the in Irish politics in Fianna Fáil, and I think more widely. Uh, going back to early 20th century, that the hard-headed Ulster Unionist uh, would be motivated exclusively by economic considerations, mm -hmm. and that if the economic considerations uh, uh, were in favour of a united Ireland, they would be there tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And uh, what this whole debate has... I, I, never, I never believed it as a historical argument, mm -hmm. and I think what I've been observing in recent times has more than confirmed that. And what you said earlier about emotion, mm -hmm. I think emotion uh, one of the things that we as scholars have to deal with yeah. much more than we would yeah. normally do is emotion. Yeah. But I think, just to go back to that point, your point, sorry, around bilateral agreements. Mm. I mean, we have shown the success of cross-border working in health and it's about pulling resources, it's about a critical mass, it's about common sense. But we were able to do it under the, that umbrella of we were both EU member states. Mm -hmm. That will yeah, yeah. mean we have to have uh, a much more strategic look at how to sell that, yeah. how to ensure that people aren't threatened by right. it, yeah. but that we are not wasting resources or trying to deliver things that we simply cannot deliver. Yeah. I think we should uh, draw to a conclusion. That's been a fantastic panel. Thank you so much for kicking us off. So, uh,